Hello and welcome to The Two View. This is the cutting edge podcast for emergency medicine, PAs and nurse practitioners, and we are live from Las Vegas, Nevada this time around here. I've always wanted to say that I love the UFC and Bruce Buffer. So we are live and we're here as always with my co-host, nurse practitioner, Martha Roberts. I am PA Mike Sharma and we're here at Vegas. This is day three of the original emergency medicine boot camp at the Paris Hotel on the strip, Las Vegas Boulevard. And we've got a great crew here of boot campers that are with us right now. We appreciate you guys sticking around. This is like day three for them and they're staying after the full day. So like big props to you guys. We hopefully have like a, like a keychain or something we can give you guys at the very least for sticking around here. Martha, how are you doing today? You just got done with a really important shopping trip. You want to tell people about that? Well, I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm very excited. I did pretty okay on craps, enough to buy myself a new pair of shoes. So baby got a new pair of shoes. That's that's feeling good today. Two, you had two new pairs of shoes. Shh, don't tell everybody that. Okay, okay, gotcha. Never mind. One. There's only one. One pair of shoes. And what kind of shoes are they? They are the one and only Jimmy Choo's. So, they make you feel good. They make me feel good. But today, what makes me feel even better is that we have three really special guests here with us. We normally only have one interview, and I gotta tell you, we wanted to surprise you with this. We have Chip Lang, who is our ultrasound guru. He is a PA, and he is fantastic. He's been giving talks with us here in Las Vegas. We have Jesse Werner, who is a physician, and she is going to give a lot of input at the end on being new in the emergency department. And last but not least is Dr. Rick Bucata, who is head of these courses here in Las Vegas and all over the country. Emergency medicine, um, abstracts, podcasting, you name it, he does it. He was the pioneer and we're really glad to have everybody here. So thanks guys for being here. So we wanna kinda just jump right in and talk about some of the things that are hot in emergency medicine right now. They are a big deal. So we're gonna to talk to you about that today. Um, and who's got our clicker so we can advance forward here? Not me. Not you? Oh, Dave's coming to rescue. Oh. So here in Las Vegas, we like to start the boot camp early in the morning. Thanks. We have um, very short 30 minute segments uh, to distribute the information to you. And anytime that you wanna look up more courses or find out when we're next here, you can go to www.ccme.org. So let's start our first topic, hot topics here. Well, the buck stops here. There are new prescribing requirements for NPs in the state of California as well as physicians that you need to be aware of. And this is gonna be going to all the states eventually. And then we're gonna take a gamble and talk about prescribing to friends and family to do or not to do. And then it's all a crapshoot, right, with this? Oh boy, Mike's gonna to talk to us about a combination medication called Siglentis. Siglentis, and we, if you, if faithful listeners of the two of you recall, early on we talked about Glasgow Smith Klein's uh, Advil Duo Action, uh, and a really, really groundbreaking combination combining Tylenol and Motrin uh, together in one pill and then upcharging for it. And, and a really like odd dosing schedule too. And so that was just, wow, really something that emergency medicine was missing. And Seglentis is gonna be another one of these drugs in the, I think, uh, you know, Advil Dual Action Hall of Shame here. We'll talk more about that in a second. 
Yeah, so let's start off by talking about these new prescribing laws, and I think they're very interesting and actually very concerning. Rick and I had a conversation about this um, just about a week ago. So there is a new California law um, under AB section 2789. Beginning January 1st, 2022, all prescriptions issued by a licensed healthcare practitioner in the state of California, in the state of California must do so by submitting them electronically. No more paper scripts no more phone calls, no more helping friends. The only time that they say in this law where they've created this, uh, this requirement that you have to do that, that you don't have to write, excuse me, you don't have to have an electronic prescription is if there is a major power outage at your hospital. I don't think that's ever happened to me in 20 years. Um, or if your printer is broken, which actually happens to me on a daily basis, so I, I might be able to get the last shift I think I worked, <laughs> the printer went down. Yeah, so that's, probably use that there's, more there's going to be a lot of printers going down yeah a lot of printers it, are going to be going down i don't get that um, one yeah if I know. the printer's broken you can't submit it electronically so they have to have a paper script uh with them in addition to the electronic to prove that oh. that is what you wrote you have to have both yes and in addition they say okay listen what if the patient is homeless and doesn't have a preferred pharmacy, can you give them a paper script and only a paper script, in which case you can, or if they're going over state lines? It's all over the place. What if you cross the international date line? Is it affected in any way? <laughs> I, think, I think then you'll also be able to give a paper script. But you know, this is really interesting. So when the pharmacist gets written, oral, or faxed prescriptions, they don't have to verify that you couldn't do it electronically. They just have to have a good faith that you couldn't do it. So are we going to be able to get away with this for a little bit of time? Boy, this is just these so many exceptions here. And like one or more things can conceivably be happening at any point in time. So I wonder just how important this law was to begin with and how, how easy it's going to be to circumvent this law. It doesn't seem like it has a lot of um, requirements to certify that these things weren't happening. So I'm so curious to see how that is actually affects practice for people. So you know who this um, doesn't uh, prescribe to uh, is, it says in the law, the prescription law is not valid for veterinarians, so they can keep writing paper scripts. There you go. So I you talked to my brother. Dogs don't have computers, so that kind of makes sense. <laughs> I, I guess the part that I'm a little confused by, so um, like electronic controlled substances, you have dual authentication, right? I mean, that's the whole idea is I have to prove, because my phone is apparently more secure than the computer I'm on, is that I have to prove that you know it's me twice over that I'm the one who's prescribing this, but I, I'm not as familiar with this law. So, so from what I'm taking from this, are you saying that not only do I dual authenticate this substance, this 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 drug, but now they have to go with a physical prescription to say also, oh yes, yes, it really was this. So it's not a paper prescription that you sign. It's when you print out the copy on the printer with the electronic, it says this is an electronic prescription. They need to bring that with them to the pharmacy in, crazy. in coordination okay. with that electronic. That's why we need these printers working. Okay, apparently. Yeah. Okay. I can so, see huge issues with that because the patients lose their prescriptions all the time. They lose their discharge paperwork. I mean, everybody loses their discharge paperwork. Well, take a look at a trash can on the way out of the ER. Exactly. I They're know. not going to be able to bring that with them. But, you know, as the weather moves from the west to the east, this, this is a, a really a big change. Yeah, so that, that kind of makes me want to jump to the, the next topic here, just to discuss this. 
And this is prescribing to friends and family. Now I can't prescribe for you anymore. Yeah, I know. And you know I, what you the heck's going on? For me. What you know? are we going to do? How am I going to get um, how am I going to get you your Valtrex and you your uh, <laughs> Amroid medication? And the other, your Anusol. The other thing is all your electronic prescribing is coming from where you work, so you can't do anything from home. Well, so let's talk about that. When I worked for a group in Virginia, I wasn't allowed to write any prescriptions uh, for anybody that asked me. That was the group's rule. So if I wasn't at work doing my own thing, just whatever, wasn't allowed to write a script for anyone. And it was not a three strikes, you're out. One time, you're done. If they could not verify that you saw that patient in their emergency department while you were practicing with them. And I didn't hate that rule because I understood why they were trying to protect the group. But then after a while, I thought to myself, would they know if I did it? And as a matter of fact, they told me that they had already found people in the past that, that violated that rule and they were excused. They were released from employment. The, I think it's really overreaching. Uh, you, uh, as a, you, you become private when you uh, go home. And do you? Yeah, I think you do. You don't work for them when you go home. So a rule that says you can't prescribe a prescription to anyone else is just, um, is that fascist or <laughs> it's, it's bad, whatever it is. I think there's an important distinction to be made here between how physicians do this and how PAs and NPs do this. And of course, there's gonna be differences in every state, but the way that I can prescribe medications is because I have prescriptive authority delegated to me from my physician. Right, so usually the chief of my department or the head of the urgent care that I work for, whatever, right? They have said, I give my permission to prescribe these medications here, you know? And so um, you mentioned about like that local policy, right? Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to, just like any, any, any complicated topic like this, I think it really comes down to knowing who you're working with, knowing your local policies and what the deal is there because like I know there are certain places that I've worked where you know the docs that I work with have no problem with me saying hey can you slide me this or that for something it's just easier that way um, I know what's going on here and then they say sure you know you no problem we'll get you your your Norco 10325 mic I, I think you're good for it kidding kidding um, but um, you know there's been other places I too have worked for a place where um, you will not look up your own families medical records you will not prescribe medications for your own family even if they came to be seen at one of our facilities you still will not be involved in the prescribing process there and so um i generally think this is a bad idea frankly okay um i kind of i'm kind of freewheeling here a little bit because so so for a couple of reasons why it's a bad idea number one um there's not really any sort of chart behind like documenting your decision-making process officially and it's not entered into a medical record somewhere hey, usually I'm gonna interrupt you what makes it okay. official because every time I, I, and quite frankly we, I mean if I've given Motrin to my um, you know neighbor or something or even if I was prescribing something to Rick I would make a chart and I would make a note and that that counts if you read the language in the nurse practitioner requirements you just have to have a chart it doesn't matter that it's official from a hospital it just yeah. has to be a chart which I, mean, I did I mean look at telemedicine they're prescribing all the time for people who uh, talk to them basically over the phone. I mean, you're not, you're just, you know, for the majority of it, there's no, nothing visual to see that yeah. makes it unique. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I no, think- No, I get it. I yeah. think, you know, having that official chart, the word official here is kind of 
What does that mean? I, I think where my personal bias has come into play is where I've been burned before. Okay, I've been burned trying as best I can to do the right thing for, for a family member, and it still came down on me because there was a policy uh, uh, that was interpreted a certain way, um, and that's all I want to say about that, frankly. Um, but so I, I think it's one of those times where it's exceedingly rare, especially in the days of telehealth being so prevalent and urgent care is being everywhere you look. I feel like the, the potential downside it exceeds the upside of, of not getting somebody else involved. What do they do, take the albuterol and spray it under their armpit? <laughs> exactly, just kind of on the neck, <laughs> right? You know, in case they come in, come in for a hug, you can have that on there. Fruity. It's different so. for you in rural <laughs> settings, Chip. So Chip practices, he's, he's the country mouse and I'm the city mouse of the PAs, right? Like I'm in, I'm in Dallas, Texas, you know, and you can't swing a, a cat without hitting an ER versus rural Missouri, you know, there's a lot of space between ERs and practice settings. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is something that's, that's challenging. Like you said, every, every state's going to be a little bit different in, in how prescriptions work and stuff like that. But one, one thing that I, I would say, talking about like the official versus unofficial charting and stuff like that, is that <clears throat> having, having been in this situation where you have someone who comes up to you and says like, hey, I know what's going on, like this has happened to me before, I, I, I just need a little bit of something, I can't get him at my doctor because I work the night shifts with you, and like I, 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 I empathize with that, but at the same time, um, you, you don't have an official note somewhere in a lot of cases. You, you, you could, like you were talking about, you could, you could, depending on your state and your requirements, put something there somewhere. Um, but also, how often do you actually get the, the full physical exam or stuff that you would normally do, that normal relationship you would have? Because it's one of these nurses who's like, you're in the middle of charting, you're trying to get home because you're already 30 minutes past shift, and they're like, hey, by the way, um, I, I was actually kind of happy when my department made a policy because um, it was, I, I hate to say this, a bit of a cop-out. Um, you know, I, I could say, well, here's the deal. Like, our, our medical director, because we've had some issues in the past, this is no one, physician, PA, MP, it doesn't matter. None of us are supposed to be prescribing for anyone who is not a patient of the emergency department. Um, because something else to keep in mind is that, um, let's say in this situation, again, this may vary state by state, stuff like that too, uh, with possibly Good Samaritan coverage depending on, but what happens if, if you do have someone that you gave them a medication to or, or you, you prescribe them something and then they have an adverse outcome? Are you protected by malpractice? Well, if it wasn't in the setting that you were practicing in, you, you, you did that on your own, yeah. then you're, you're kind of left out on your own in most cases. So the Stevens Johnsons you're going to have to pay for. Yep, exactly. Right. And <laughs> Jesse, what do you think? What do you think about this? Is it something that you would do or not do? You know, I'm finding this to be concerning because it's incredibly inconvenient. And I think about it, I'm very careful about prescribing to friends and family. Um, I generally don't do it if, um, I generally don't do it. I think the big time that I'm prescribing, you know, this law would apply to me is really for myself. Like a very simple urinary tract infection, I know what's going on, I need some Keflex. Or, for example, I was in Vermont two summers ago and I got a terrible stomach bug. I was, I was vomiting, I felt awful, I, wanted, I needed some Zofran, you know, and I'm not near my doctor, the hours are completely different. I got some Zofran, I felt a million times better, it was like life-saving for yeah. me. And to, not be, to think that I might not be able to do that or, you know, get in touch with someone in the middle of the night, can you imagine waking up your PCP? because you're calling the emergent line because you need some Zofran, you know? Like, 
I hate to have to do that. It would be right. so much better. So I'm, I'm just concerned about the major inconvenience that this is going to be for everyone down the pikes here. Are you not concerned about the raging Keflex and Ondansetron epidemic <laughs> going on right now. The overuse of these drugs in right. society and the second order and third order effects here. Yeah, well, that's ridiculous. Know, I mean, I, st I practiced in the DC area for about 12, 13 years. And I, you know, sometimes I have a friend or a family member that needs something and I have called. That is not against the law or against my license. I'm allowed to do that if I want to do that. And I don't want to not be able to do that. I think I am careful about doing this. I don't. Uh, I think I kind of try to think what are the potential consequences. Um, I am aware that I'm uninsured when I do this, and that my house uh, could be somebody else's house. So, would that be in my uh, in mind? I well, sure. Think I'll I'm, write you I'm for uh, three hundred Percocet right now. You just take them all at once, okay? <laughs> It would be I'm nice. prescribing carefully. You may not be. I'm kidding. It I'm would be nice joking. if they ruled this out with specifically with controlled substances. Yes. That makes a yes, ton of exactly. sense. That makes perfect sense. That should be controlled. It should be heavily controlled, and they should put a bunch of uh, protections in place, and it would make sense to me if they were saying any sort of, you know, benzos, opioids, of course. But to just say this is everything yeah. seems a little rash. Let's take a little poll here. We have a little studio audience today here. I want you guys to think right now, do you generally feel comfortable or uncomfortable prescribing to friends and family, just with all the different issues we've presented here? If you generally feel comfortable in most situations prescribing for friends and family outside of your practice setting, can you raise your hand, please? All right, screenshot that, Dave. <laughs> so the vast minority, frankly, feel generally comfortable here. Is that yeah. that's, that's what you voted? Is generally comfortable? Okay. Can you? Oh wow! Yeah, that's oh, interesting. Medical devices. Oh, that's, now that's it a good doesn't point. specifically address medical <clears throat> devices in here. So that's interesting. So but, the point that our, our studio audience member pointed out is medical devices are also prescribed. So a mask for a CPAP machine, a nebulizer, stuff like that. A walker. We really a walker. Exactly. Crutches. You know, like, spacer. come on, you know, a spacer, like, oh my yeah. gosh, right? A lot of those need a documented face-to-face -face encounter, though, with it, at, at least, at least uh, like in my experience. To... Yeah, for insurance to cover it, they need oh. a documented face-to-face -face encounter. So, I mean, that sometimes can be a secondary uh, issue that comes up, though. I don't, I don't I, at least where I'm at, that, that's been an issue where someone wants a medical device and, and now we have to go through these hoops that attest that we had a face-to-face -face encounter specifically for this medical device and blah, blah, blah. I'm with Jesse. This should be for only controlled substances. The I, California yeah. law, yeah. 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 I, I don't, I don't well, disagree with let me, that. Let me call the Gavin and see what he says. Coming to a state near you. Yes. Hopefully okay. not, right? So, yeah. um, but the last thing I wanted to say, Mike, if you go back to that slide for just one moment, I just wanted to point out is that there is an additional law that would was just released that Rick and I were also talking about that was using your home address as your prescription site. You want to, if you want, and get your own electronic printer and send it from home. If you want to do that, the DEA says, sure, you can do that. But that also means, what can the DEA do? They can come raid your house at any time and, and inspect your entire facility uh, to see what you're doing. But I think that they view this in the terms of a physician's office, which has pills and stuff like that that they may be giving out to patients and the like. But in a physician's office, you know, what about, there are a lot of retired physicians in California. I'm retired. I paid $800 for my license, and I should be allowed to prescribe it. I should have full authority to do what my license uh, allows me to do. And I choose to have my 
office as my home. So, you know, um, if you think about it, uh, your printer could be down permanently. Or well, I don't even have a way of sending an electronic prescription to a, a pharmacy. I mean... Your power I, went out. No, know, no, I don't, ha I don't have a way to... There but, is, that's what I'm saying. Do I have software to do that? I don't, I don't know how to send a... I can't send a, a prescription. I'm done. So, no, but so specifically, you sort of fall under this, like, section 688B5, where basically um, really the conditions are not uh, allowing you to, to be able to electronically prescribe or transmit to a patient. Just tell so, them you still have dial-up and a dot matrix printer, <laughs> and that should handle it right What's there, your aim I feel handle? like. Yeah. <laughs> All, right, All right, let's, let's, let's move, on. move on. Okay, so just some quick... Um, Yes and no's here about DEAs, in case you were ever wondering. Can I use a P.O. box for a DEA? No, you cannot. Can you change your address on your DEA? Absolutely, you can change your address anytime that you want. And not I think you're required to change yeah. your address. You should, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you should for each, each place. Now, if you border two states and work in each, do you need a separate DEA number? Yes, you do. And when I was in the D.C. area, I needed one for Maryland, D.C., and Virginia as a nurse practitioner. And once I get a oh. DEA, can uh, I prescribe Schedule Twos? No, not necessarily. In California, I had to take additional training, a test, and pay another two hundred and seventy-five dollars to be able to prescribe Schedule Two. And as you should. Oh, jeez. Here's a question I hear about DEAs a lot: is that if I work two different jobs in the same state, do I need a DEA for each job? No, no I don't see why you would need that. No. No. Okay. All right. Let's move on to our second segment, Mike. And, oh, good. Here we go. And really just, is this a crapshoot or what? This, this tramadol issue, um, well, you know, we want to talk a little bit about cost issues. Now, I've got to tell the people that these opinions are those of the... Individuals? Individuals. Yes. yes. So, there, yeah, there is as, no opportunity to get screwed up here. As always, any, you know, thoughts or issues put out here on the two of you are by the people presenting them. They are not by any employers past, present, or future, or by the Center for Medical Education or any affiliated organization. And we will do this gently. Yes. Okay. Very well. Okay. I'll, yeah, I'll... Tramadol sucks. <laughs> well, that's oh, generic. I think it's okay to say Tramadol sucks, right? All Tram's a brand, right? Who'd... So Tramadol is generic. So, all right. So here we go. I'm just going to read from this press release. This is from the Pharmacy Times about this new drug, Seglentis. And I'll be as, um, I, I guess, as, yeah, uh, uh, have as much equipoise as I can muster here. Objection. The FDA has approved Celecoxib and Tramadol hydrochloride. So it's Celecoxib and Tramadol together in a drug called Seglentis for acute pain management in individuals with pain severe enough to require an opioid analgesic and for which alternative treatments are inadequate. What, what, in what world are alternative treatments inadequate that you would have to use tramadol? I'm not quite sure about that. Jesse, you talked today about analgesia uh, during the boot camp. You had a mm -hmm. great 30 minute lecture on analgesia, procedural sedation too, right? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So you, you kind of started down the tramadont road and just because of the scope of the, the 30 minutes, there wasn't enough time to really get into why are people kind of easing off of tramadol. It used to be that tramadol was thought of as the safe opioid, right? Like, well, we don't want people to get messed up by taking Norco or whatever. Let's give them tramadol and they'll get 
excellent pain relief, better than just taking Tylenol and Motrin, but without all the nasty side effects of things like you know, hydrocodone, oxycodone, can you speak a little more to that? Yeah, actually we had our, um, this wonderful toxicologist who I work with at UCSF Fresno gave us some really great information about tramadol. It was recently a segment on MRAP with Jessica Mason. And essentially tramadol is an opioid. A lot of people get confused about that. It is an opioid and it has all the same side effects. So it can be just as addicting and you can overdose on it. Um, so the big concern also about tramadol comes with its metabolism which is that it has super unpredictable metabolism because it depends on an enzyme to turn it into the active form, which is the metabolite, the active form that actually hits our uh, opioid receptors, okay? And, the, and we all have that enzyme, but it works differently in all of us, just like you know, all of our enzymes are a little bit different in all of us. And so for some people, tramadol does nothing. In other people, it has a huge, strong overdose type effect, and you just don't know how it's going to hit. And so the concern when you're prescribing tramadol is that you really don't know what kind of effect it's going to have. It is not predictable. And I would much rather use an opioid that I know, I know exactly how much I'm giving, and I know exactly how it's going to work. One more word about tramadol, which is that even at normal doses, it lowers your seizure threshold. And so people can ha come in with seizures. And um, I've seen the, it. Yeah, and the other thing about tramadol, the overdoses uh, aren't very responsive to Narcan, so it's hard to treat. Um, so there's a lot of problems with tramadol. Can, just, can you also mention the serotonin syndrome bit? Since yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a dirty drug, it's, it's mixed effects with it. Yeah, it's kind of like an SNRI. And so if you're taking an SSRI or an SNRI plus tramadol, that's when you can get those things like serotonin syndrome. And uh, it kind of combines and makes it more like doubles your dose of SSRI or SNRI. So I'm just curious, has anyone here taken tramadol and have an opinion on it, either pro or against? What did it feel like? Um, did it help your pain? Anybody on the panel or in the audience? Was it something? Oh, okay. Would, actually, would you mind coming up here for a minute and just chatting with us? Because we have the mic and we can't get down to you. I'm sure she really wanted to do she, this. Like, exactly she was like, I really want to be on stage right now and answer this, this question about Tramadol. You just shut down every other response. <laughs> no one will ever look even our way again. Like, no one's even going to make eye contact with us now. This is the gamble that she had to take. So um, just tell us your first name and tell us what you thought about it. Um, Alexis and... I've never taken tramadol, but I've prescribed tramadol, and um, although it does increase the seizure threshold, and there has been a patient that has had a seizure, but they had a history of seizures, which they did not inform us of, even after I had asked them about that. But the patient seemed to get good relief, especially if they also have neuropathic pain. So as far as chronic pain, it's something, but I find it really interesting to learn that as far as acute, that it's not not good. So we could kind of describe your thoughts on towards tramadol. You're kind of a tramadol fan. Like you, you at, this, at least at this point, you you think it's inappropriate. It's okay. It's part of your armamentarium, as they say. All right. She says okay. she's a fan. Dave, take another screenshot. So, so I, I have to say um, thank you. By the way, yes, thank I, you yes. so much. I know you didn't have to get up here this and, is and the talk like that. Podcast for NPs, PAs, and physicians. So, <laughs> so I have to say that. Uh, early on when I was when I was practicing like the first year out because uh, of the fact that I, I've been practicing now long enough that tramadol wasn't a controlled substance 
And so it was something that was relatively easy to prescribe. Uh, and so I, I admit that I used it for a while until I started reading more into tramadol and started seeing issues with patients. And I thought, wow, this is not that great of a drug after all. Um, so, so it was a bit of trial and error, but I still, we still have so many patients in my area who uh, take tramadol and uh, still a lot of perpetuation of the myth uh, by prescribers that it is not an opioid. And to try and explain to people, like, there's a reason why it's a controlled substance and, and having to walk through that. Um, but also since it's a lower tier of controlled substance than, than other opioids, um, that also gives another false sense of security. But I, I, do, I, I do know people who unfortunately developed a, a dependence on it mm -hmm, um, yeah. because they were reassured that, no, this is not addictive and instead had the exact opposite uh, situations. So this isn't to knock that maybe it's not for everyone. Like there are definitely sometimes that, that people do seem to get relief with it. Um, but I think it's one thing that we just have to be really careful of. I, I know that if, I'm, if, I, if I have my choice of drugs in front of me as far as what to prescribe, tramadol is way down on that list, if at all. But, but knowing that sometimes people do get much better relief with it, it it's, it's tricky. But, but overall, I really try and avoid, avoid tramadol, especially with past encounters with it. I feel like this is a meeting of former tramadol prescribers anonymous here. It's like, <laughs> hi, I'm Mike, and I used to prescribe tramadol, you know? And so, yeah, I think it's a pretty common thing. We all were suckered into, like, we kind of sold the false bill like of Percocet. goods. Yeah, like Percocet. Like yeah. every opioid over the past 10 or 20 years, how this pendulum is swinging back and forth and back and forth, that tramadol was safe. Um, the two times I've seen people having serotonin syndrome was because they were acutely given tramadol and they were on other medications that when combined led them into serotonin syndrome. Now, what I will say though, Celebrex alone, having to, I had to take it as a child because I had juvenile arthritis. Again, you're all learning so much about my health history. <laughs> um, I will say that I, I depended on that. In fact, when I ran out of it, I had to have my parents send it to me when I was uh, living abroad. And it, it helped my pain. It made me feel better. I needed that. So I wouldn't say that Celebrex is a bad drug, um, but I, I don't really understand the choice of combining them. Do we have any more information about why they chose those two drugs to put you, together? Because you can create a drug that where the sum is greater than the parts. But but is there any synergistic benefit of putting those two together? Well, we'd have, have to ask the company. When, when does their patent run out? Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. Like, if, if you change the formulation some, you can extend a patent. Uh, so Celebrex has been, what, out on the market for almost Long 20 time. years? I won't date myself, but it's been I mean, it's, it's been, it, it's been out there for a while. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's this is, I, I, I'm, I'm speculating, purely speculating here. So, but I mean, this has been done with other drugs where you're getting towards the end of the lifespan and uh, you can extend that patent out a little bit longer if you can show a new formulation. So a new, new mode of delivery or stuff like that. So it's, it's, that might be something. Does anybody know there. what this is going to cost? It's always going to cost more if it's a trade drug. <laughs> like if it's, if it's not generic, it's going to cost more, which I think, of course, benefits the people who are selling the drug. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I, I, I hesitate to use the I word here, but there's been all this discussion about ivermectin recently. I don't, I don't know if you guys have heard. Ivermectin is back in the news recently, oh, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, people are saying like, well, Ivermectin is generic and it's cheap now. And so there's no way that drug companies could manipulate 
ivermectin news and make money again. And to that I say, I think you have a lack of imagination about how drug companies can make money. Okay, I think that there are a lot of really interesting things. You look at certain drugs, and, and, and like we talk about how insulin, why does insulin cost so much money nowadays? Why do other drugs Walmart. cost so much money that have been out forever? It's because there are these weird kind of backdoor deals that can happen with between, not just by a certain drug company, but between drug companies where you kind of like muscle out other people that make a certain drug, so now all of a sudden, hey, you're the only game in town for making this drug or that drug, and guess what? That allows you to set prices on it. And so one thing, I'm not going to speculate on this particular company's motivations here, but I'm just going to talk in generalities, is that when you create a new drug with a new formulation, you can trademark that new formulation. And it's something weird, like, because we're used to like, okay, tramadol, you give it out in like 50 or 100 milligram doses, right? And Celebrex is 20 or 40, something like that, right? So this is like, it's something like 56 of tramadol milligrams and 44 of Celebrex. A really just like, we're just throwing darts, I feel like, and picking numbers as far as dosages here. So there's all these things that allow these companies to make a new trademark drug. The trademark will last for a long time. And if they market this right, people will start coming to the ERs and asking, for Seglentis. Just like people tell me when they come in, hey, I'm taking Advil Dual Action. Like, by name, they are dropping Advil Dual Action, this amazing formulation of Tylenol and Motrin at doses <laughs> lower than I would tell someone to, yeah. to take at home for my kids, you know? And, and, you know, the marketing really penetrates very quickly. And by the way, if you found this segment interesting, take a listen to our Dual Action. Uh, we have a conversation about the dual action um, ibuprofen and acetaminophen, and we give you some good research on that. Um, I did want to just read this press release. Oh, you that, found yeah. yeah. So this is the press release uh, that Medscape has that was put out in October of this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, they uh, they approved the combination pill for the treatment of adults with acute pain severe enough to require an opioid analgesic and for which alternative treatments fail to provide adequate pain relief. So um, this unique co-crystal formulation of Seglentis provides effective pain relief via a multimodal approach, says their chief medical officer. Um, and they also are gonna launch it in 2022. They, they write in here, and I quote, because of the risks of addiction, abuse, and misuse with opioids, even at recommended doses, the FDA will require a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, or REMS, for Seglentis, which, yeah, good. you know, is good. Um, but patients should be monitored for respiratory depression, especially within the first 24 to 72 hours after initiating the drug. And then the patient um, should also get a prescription, possibly for naloxone or Narcan, uh, when you prescribe this medication. So, you know, this was um, hot off the press. We, we had do, a lot to say Do you say give about a it. prescription for... Uh, Naloxone to anybody who uh, you give some oxycodone to? More than 12 pills, yes. More than 12? Is that the rule? Well, that's my rule. What formulation? I'm really curious. What formulation do you give it in or prescribe it in the naloxone? Uh, intranasal. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. All right, let's move on to our next segment. Um, well, oh, while we're getting there, I do like some things I like that, that he said. I like multimodal pain relief. I like attacking pain from different angles here. 
Why just take Tylenol when you can take Tylenol ibuprofen? Why just take Tylenol when you can add a lidocaine patch on there too? Or heat or ice? It's because a lot of times patients think in just one dimension. I took a thing for pain and it didn't work. Or I took, and then I took this other thing for pain and it didn't work. It's okay in many cases to take multiple things for pain relief and it works better, you know? So like, I kind of like what he said there, you know? And, and as far as tramadol goes, I'll just, my personal spin on it, I'm not a Tramonever person, okay? If, <laughs> if someone has had excellent pain relief before on Tramadol and no bad outcomes, I'm not 100% against prescribing it again um, with a good discussion, okay? All right, that's that. All right, Chip, you know, you're our ultrasound um, expert here today, and I remember coming to one of your courses. Uh, it was a butter we had a butterfly there. We had excellent models. It was a wonderful, tight-knit group. Um, I learned a lot. It was in a really cool location. I had a tiny house. It was really, really nice to just kind of go back to and hang out, have some wine and just chill. Um, but first, I would just like, would you tell us just a little bit about what you do and a little bit about why ultrasound is helpful in rural medicine for you? Yeah, so I, I practice in rural Missouri as an emergency medicine PA, and uh, the course you're talking about is, is great because uh, there was no cell phone reception out there, so you, you kind of had to be there and enjoy the environment and surroundings and stuff like that. But um, for, for me in, in clinical practice, um, I, I work both in the emergency department in a, in a relatively rural environment, but also I work in the pre-hospital environment still. And uh, point of care ultrasound or POCUS has been exceptionally helpful for me for a wide variety of conditions because uh, most things in the human body you can see one way or the other uh, with ultrasound. And I, with, my, with my patients, um, I just found it so helpful. And it was something that because of where I was at, I had to teach myself initially how to, how to do this. And, and uh, it's, it's really hard to to watch a, a podcast or watch videos and like try and figure out how, how ultrasound works, let alone like you, you get a, a random textbook and then you're trying to look at uh, old black and white pictures and, <laughs> and then trying to connect the dots there. So, so I had to do a lot of practice the hard way. And um, luckily I, I, I met up with some, some true experts and you know started learning from them. And then next thing you know, I, I, I realized that there are certain things that are missing in the traditional models of medical education when it comes to ultrasound that, hey, if we can, if we can exercise this and implement this uh, across the country, we, we'd, we'd have more success with it. And so that's what led to me developing Practical Pocus. So Practical Pocus um, is my ultrasound education company. And so we do, we do public courses like the one you signed up for where we have courses that you can, you can go to in person or online. Uh, we actually started preparing for our online course right before the pandemic, and so it came live around the same time, uh, which, which worked out great for a lot of people. Um, but also, you know, we do private courses. So we just did one for a major orthopedic institute out on the East Coast. Um, we do ones for residency programs, PA, NP programs, uh, med schools, uh, also like private clinical practices or even whole hospital systems we've been working with. So, so the idea is that, uh, especially when we do these, these groups like this, is we want everyone to walk away with the same level of training because uh, I, 
the five of us here all have different levels, I imagine, of uh, levels of training with point of care ultrasound. So, you know, you may have someone who attended a one-hour workshop one time, and so you know how to do one thing, and that, that's, that's fine. If that's the one thing you just want to use it for, then you have someone else who's residency trained uh, and has maybe a f additional fellowship training in point-of-care ultrasound. So how do you have people who've attended a workshop or maybe a few workshops or someone who has extensive training, how do we get those people as close to on par with one another as possible? Now, understanding that the person who's fellowship trained is way ahead of everyone else, but if we can help bring the others up to this minimal level of competence and, and proficiency there, um, that's, that's part of what Practical POCUS is meant to, is, is really show you this is what ultrasound can do and then let's go into more detail. And, and one of the cool things with Practical POCUS as well is that we're, uh, you know, we have our introductory course that's available online and, and we do in person as well with, but we're developing uh, specialty courses. So we're developing an advanced echocardi uh, echocardiography course, an advanced OBGYN course, uh, MSK and ortho course, anesthesia course, uh, pulmonology course, and pediatrics course. Like we have these different uh, segments because we we recognize that there's additional need there, and so these are not going to be your like oh I, I did a one hour workshop. These, we're talking about like twenty hour courses. Um, so we're talking about multi day courses that that people would be able to attend and, and really get uh, a really good working knowledge of a particular subject and not just the broad basics of, of what we work with. Yeah, so I've actually attended Chip's course, like I said, but we have our own ultrasound course as well that Rick designed, um, and they were both extremely different. I learned a plethora of information at both in very different ways because the instructors were so dynamically different, um, and the structure of the course was different, and I actually felt like I needed a third course just to kind of put it all together <laughs> of maybe just like, you know, a quick one-hour in-service or something to test my knowledge. So um, the course that we offer, Rick, um, it has uh, most of the people that uh, Teresa brings are from UCLA. Yes, Teresa Liu is the uh, head of the course, and she's uh, the head of uh, ultrasound at, at Harbor General Hospital. Uh, which is a UCLA affiliate, and most of the instructors are um, uh, have fellowships in ultrasound. I think all of them do, actually. And they basically uh, come from mostly Southern California, but we have one uh, from Washington, D.C., and so a couple here oh, yeah, and there. Yeah. So we have, and we have a lot. We like we had 40 people training, and they had like uh, three people per instructor. So it yeah. was really pretty intense. Yeah. And lots and lots and lots of hands-on because when people go to an ultrasound course, that's what they want to do. I want to do it. And let me let me do it. So if you haven't taken a course and you're interested, I suggest doing one or both. I think that you'd have a great time and, and actually really meet a lot of really great people. But specifically, um, just to finish off the segment, I wanted to ask you if you could sort of specifically talk about um, two or three things that you have found ultrasound to be very useful for. Yeah, so I'll talk about some of the ones that I probably most commonly use it for, like, you know, they're the sexier topics, if you will, like, you know, like doing an EFAST or doing, doing ECHO and stuff like that, which, I mean, can make a huge difference in clinical management, but let's, let's, talk, let's face it, I mean, most of the day, a lot of us see a lot of musculoskeletal, skin and soft tissue type injuries, and you get the x-ray, especially like, you know, it's a busy day in the emergency department, so you've got these people who get x-rays done in triage, and now they're coming back to a room 
and they just want to know where their x-ray results are. And they already know it's not broken because, you know, it's more of a rotator cuff tear. So they're, they're not satisfied with that. But if you can show them on the ultrasound, like, yes, let's actually take a look here. Okay, I can see signs of a rotator cuff tear. This is something that we'll need to follow with orthopedics. No, I cannot get you an MRI tonight in the emergency department. That's just not something that's feasible for us to do, like we, like we talked about in the course, too. You know, people... people Unfortunately, a lot of people have expectations of I can get an MRI from the emergency department, and that's just almost always not going to be the case, especially for MSK injuries like this. But if I can show them that, hey, here's a muscle tear, here's a tendon tear, or some, some kind of follow-up here with that, makes a huge difference. And, and these are things that are relatively easy to, to do. Um, we talked about earlier today about uh, Achilles tendon tears, about how easy it is to identify an ultrasound. But to be able to show that, I, I, I literally had a patient last week with an Achilles tendon tear, uh, very similar to the story that you were talking about earlier, Jess, Jess uh, where we had the same kind of situation. Patient comes in and like describes the story, and you're already kind of suspicious. The Thompson test is 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 you know not really adding up. But to be able to show him like, hey, this is your tendon tear. Uh, fortunately, it's not a complete tendon tear. It, it's a pretty significant one, but you know we need to make sure that we can get you in with orthopedic surgery right away. And then I can even talk to my orthopedic surgery colleague. And it's like this is a very young, active male, and he's someone that would really benefit from your services. And so we can schedule all that and get everything set up. Now, now the uh, surgeon is on board quickly. This patient has better understanding, uh, which leads to not only better comprehension, but better patient satisfaction because they actually get to see what's going on, not just say, well, they told me I had a tear, and I guess they might be right. But um, even someone who, like, pulls, you know, like, pulls a quad or something like that, you can sometimes be able to just show them the ultrasound, like, okay, there's some signs of a tear there. Um, one, one of our docs actually tore, his, uh, tore part of his gastroc because he was playing basketball and uh, got a little too aggressive with it. <laughs> so uh, it's like, okay, let's just see if I actually tore something here or if I'm just a big wimp. And so, so, so we took a look, and, and, and sure enough, he had it. But, but it was great because he got to see his tear, and it, it was just like any other patient, like to be able to see that this is how it works and this is, this is what's going on and this is how I can fix it uh, made all the difference there. You know, something else that we, we see is cellulitis and abscess. Um, how, how often, um, if, you, if you do your own ID, stuff like that, how, how often have you seen like, oh, I, I think this might be an abscess. Um, I'm going to go ahead and cut it open. And then you make your incision and like nothing or next to nothing drains. How, has, has that happened to anyone here before? Just raise a hand. It's, I will not call you like Martha it's, did. It's only you, Chip. No, no, no. See, that's because I use ultrasound. But now it doesn't happen to me. Um, most likely, you probably had something that was phlegminous. You know, you probably had something that might have been in like a pre-abscess, or maybe it was just purely purulent cellulitis, and there was no abscess to drain. I, I'm serious. I don't, I don't cut anything anymore without, without looking at first an ultrasound because um, I've, I've identified pseudoaneurysms, um, which are definitely things you don't want to cut <laughs> into. Um, I, you know, I've, I've caught the, yeah. I mean, I've done that, but also. Um, INDs where I'm like, this is just a tricky spot, and then you find out that there's this vessel that's right next to it, um, or you're trying to get a good idea of the size, because sometimes you might drain abscess, and you're like, did I really drain all of it? Or find out, I had this, this one lady who had like a labial abscess that was way going down and, 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 and kind of invading into deeper tissues and would not have expected that on the surface. Yeah. And so by looking at it with wow. the ultrasound first, I'm like, there is no way I'm going to cut this open and uh, got, got our OBGYN team involved mm. and, and they take care of it. So, 
So, you know, the cellulitis, I think we, we take for granted sometimes, but also I've, I've caught necrotizing fasciitis on ultrasound, um, which, you know, is, is really a fantastic tool because x-rays, x-rays not sensitive at all for it. CT is not always going to be reliable for it. I mean, you, you got to take them to the OR if you have any real question with it, or at least, you know, cut it open and see what's going on there. But the ultrasound is still really helpful because you look for that dirty air shadow uh, that exists there, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm describing things that you, you can't see, especially on a, on a more audio-type podcast, yes. but um, that's why you take the course, and then you can see it. Right. Uh, well, how, about, how about the ocular ultrasound? Yeah, I mean, so, so ocular is fantastic because as long as you know what the eyeball looks like and you know the basic structures of the eyeball, that's what you're seeing on the ultrasound. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I'll admit, I am terrible with an ophthalmoscope. Uh, like, we have panoptics, and, and it's a little bit better, but, you know, the patients who really you need to look into their eyes are the exact same patients that you can't see into their eyes because they're a five-year-old that's freaking out or a 25-year-old that freaks out like a five-year-old, <laughs> and then you can't see it anyway. Uh, so, so if I can put the, you know, some nice cool gel down and, and put the ultrasound probe to it, they calm down. I can see all the structures. I can test extraocular movements. I can check pupillary reflex with it. I can look for signs of retinal attachment, vitreous hemorrhage, lens dislocation, sometimes foreign bodies uh, that maybe you didn't see on the physical exam. You can, you can see there. Uh, I've seen central artery occlusion with it. Um, I have also picked up other kind of weird pathology with it. Uh, increased intracranial pressure, you can find all sorts of, basically all the things we care about in emergency medicine, urgent care type settings where like these are emergencies, you can pick up with, with the ultrasound on things that you wouldn't have picked up on, on, a, on a decent physical exam. So uh, to me, uh, am I gonna find all the things that an ophthalmologist may care about? Not necessarily, but am I gonna find the things that are most pressing, the, the ones that we really don't wanna miss, like that, that MAC-ON, uh, retinal detachment that can progress to a MAC off. If we can catch it early and get them to an ophthalmologist immediately, you know, we can, we can preserve that person's vision. And uh, again, being able to see that on an ultrasound, uh, that has personally help, helped me multiple times with patients. I kind of feel like, I, I've not been doing this long, frankly, emergency medicine, um, but I still have this pressure of like old dog new tricks kind of thing getting into my head and I think I'm overthinking it here like I, and I, I feel like I need to get better on ultrasound but I still have this thing of like it's gonna be really hard Mike are you sure you want to do this do you think you really need to do this chip also talked earlier in the course about kind of like the landscape of emergency yeah. medicine PAs and NPs in at least with PAs the new grad PAs are coming out of school with this knowledge already so if there are experienced PAs or maybe, you know, uh, NPs as well who didn't get this in, in, you know, in their training here, understand that your competition, when it's going to be like, hey, there are only two slots available in this ED, I'm looking at 10 different candidates here, what do you bring to the table that is different from the rest of the field here? Oh, well, I am like fully trained in ultrasound and bedside. I have this much experience, this many hours. I've been using ultrasound for this many years here. This is the new skill in emergency medicine and you're gonna be left behind if, if you don't do this. And I'm talking more to myself than anybody else, okay? So well, I need to kind of bite the bullet and get on one of these courses. If I may, like pro proficiency too, I think that's one thing that really freaks people out is like, okay, so, so how hard is it to develop proficiency in this? And, and there have been some really good studies. And, uh, there was one that was actually published a couple months ago that was talking about 
Um, how many exams does it take? On average, for any particular type of evaluation, like let's say ocular for a second, it averages about 25, maybe 50 exams that you need to do. That's really not that many. Um, I, I mean, think about all the eye complaints that you come in, that you see. Plus, you can practice on, on normal individuals as well. It doesn't have to be 25 people with pathology. Uh, these exams individually are not, not bad. And I will tell you, you will develop, uh, you'll relearn anatomy that you forgot about because that's really a big chunk of ultrasound is just understanding anatomy. But uh, about 25 to 50 uh, exams to, uh, for an individual application and about 150 to 300 total exams to get like general competence in point, you know, point of care ultrasound. So that's like, hey, I understand my, my gain and how to get the right depth and how to do these types of things. And if you, again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like take, take a course, uh, you know, I'm gonna plug practical focus because that's me. <laughs> um, but but you, can, you can check these courses out and again, these, these provide lots of topics. Plus, one more thing I'd say to that is it really, you know, we talked about how it helps patients with patient satisfaction and patient understanding and stuff like that. But also this helps with the throughput of the department because you can cut out certain tests that you may not need to otherwise or redirect what, what you're gonna do studies on. But another thing too is that it does increase your productivity. It does increase RVUs. These are new CPT codes that you get to throw in. So if you are someone who's RVU driven, this can make a huge difference. Or even if you're not RVU driven, but because you're doing these exams and you're billing for them and they're relatively straightforward and quick to do like any other documentation for, for any kind of uh, procedure, uh, this can be a great way to uh, bolster yourself and really you know, say, hey, I, I could use a raise. All right, don't tell them anymore. They're just gonna need to come to your course. No yes. more, that's yes. it, no more. All right, our last segment, we're gonna end with something extremely positive here. And um, we're gonna keep it short because we, we're running over time for the um, podcast. Well, so, we're on time, we're good. We're, we are? Yeah, we oh. start at 5.45, it's 6.30. I'm hungry. Okay, well, <laughs> we're running over stomach, so we're gonna wrap this up real quick. All right, so. I really want to focus this to Jessie Warner. She's new faculty to our group here at CCME. We've really enjoyed having her. Um, she gave some great talks and I love her energy. And, and that really made me feel like she could speak very well to being new and also um, not just as a new attendant and a new resident, but how to join the group as a, an APP and what they can offer. And, and Rick, I'd love your input on this as well because I think that you could sort of um, tell us how to fit in. So well, Jesse, thank can you. you. Yeah, can you explain where you are in your yes. career? Yeah. And, and, and kind of, yeah, because we're all at different stages here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show and for having me at this course. It's been an absolute privilege. And um, I finished up my training at Brown where I did residency in 2020, so very recently. And then I did a medical education fellowship at UCSF Fresno with Dr. Jessica Mason um, because I have an interest in podcasting and uh, media and working, I work with MRAP. And I've stayed on at UCSF as faculty and it's been wonderful. It's an amazing place to work. We have incredible, patient population who really uh, is grateful to have us. It's an underserved area, UCSF Fresno. So it's been a really neat place to work. I, I can keep it brief. I think that it is hard to be the new kid on the block and imposter syndrome is real. Uh, I think everyone experiences that. And I think just, um, you know, can it's- you, Sorry, before yes. you continue on here, can you explain that? Because there are some yeah. people that still don't know what that is. Absolutely. So it's it's essentially the this idea that 
you know, what do I have to offer? Am I, am I here just because it's a fluke? Like I got lucky and someone gave me a chance and maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm just here because I got lucky, not because I know my stuff or because I worked hard to get here. It's this sense of, um, you know, do I really deserve to be here? Do I really have anything to offer? Do I, am I as good as everybody else? Do I have the knowledge? And so I struggle with that all the time. Of course I do, and it's really humbling. For me, the best way to overcome that is to sort of over-prepare. You know, I really do try, I end up doing a lot more studying. Um, I'm studying just like I was in residency. I'm doing a lot of reading yeah. and um, just trying to be over-prepared. So especially when you're working with residents and you're doing teaching, they always ask you questions that are surprising that uh, you maybe don't know how to answer. Well, you could just say, do you concur? Do you concur? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you go look it up and um, let me know. You know what? Yeah. You should know that, right? <laughs> right, right. Give me three references on that question by tomorrow morning. That's a great question you asked. Yeah. You know what I do? I just, I'm honest. And I say, you know what? I haven't been asked in that way before. I haven't been asked that question. Let's look it up together because I want to know too. I love that. So um, that's kind of my approach. I also, I think the other two big things that have been incredibly helpful for me is finding mentorship. And one of them is sitting right here, Dr. Bucata, and you know, mentorship and sponsorship and people who are sort of willing to take you under their wing, who have gone before you and, and can show you the ropes and tell you how to fit in and how to succeed. And sponsorship, sponsorship is, is an adjunct of that where they see that you have potential and lift you up and give you opportunities as you all have here at this conference. So I thank you for that. And, and then paying it forward, you know, doing that for the people who are coming through the pipelines. Um, and then the last one, in addition to mentorship, is kind of finding a buddy. That's my last piece of advice, is like, um, I, always ask, I always ask for help and figuring out who in the department you can turn to um, and ask for help. And you guys probably know Fred Wu, who oh, yeah. is a PA extraordinaire at UCSF Fred. Fresno. Everyone loves Fred, and he's been doing it forever. And I turn to him a lot. I'm like, you've been doing this a heck of a lot longer than I have. You've been at UCSF Fresno a lot longer too, so can you help me out with this? So those are my big tips. Rick, what do you think the advanced practice provider can add to the group in general? Now, you've talked about this recently on MRAP, actually a little bit with Mike and I, um, when we talked about the utility as, and also whether or not we're liked. What, how, what can we do to be useful? Well, you know, we've done a series now and we've interviewed um, people who, like the two of you, we started out with the two of you, who are, I believe, to be extraordinary NP and PA. Oh, thank you. And, and then we went to a, a, a physician who is very antagonistic about PAs coming into the emergency department and NPs. He laid out in detail, with, dispassionately I must say, um, the differences in training and the hours and the actual hours of seeing patients, et cetera. And so he thought he had made a, a good case. We had a, um, a, a director of seven of the um, residencies that are that are run by U.S. Acute Care Solutions. And the, he made it clear that these are residencies started by the hospital. Uh, contract management groups don't start residencies. They staff them, but they don't start them. They, these are hospital positions for, uh, that Medicare is paying for, and they do it for a variety of reasons, but so he doesn't think that, you know, this is a sinister plot to have doctors uh, come, in, come into their group and those kinds of things. Then I think they don't think it's a sinister plot to, uh, 
you know, o overpopulate the, the, the uh, emergency physicians. I mean, we were, we were hit by this survey. It was released probably four to six weeks ago that basically said by 2030 there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 9,000 more emergency physicians around us uh, as needed in terms of jobs. And then on top of that, we have these over, overlapping circles of, oh, by the way, uh, there are lots of PAs and MPs who would like to work in the ER, and uh, their salaries are substantially less. And there is, so there is this, is this conflict. I most recently interviewed Jillian Schmidt, and uh, who's our new ASEP president, an extraordinary woman, and uh, the EMRA leader, Angela um, Chai, C-H, I'm sorry, I, I'm blocking it right now. Okay. But in any case, Angela was great too. too. And um, this idea of who's going to work in the emergency department and, and, uh, and where, I, I, I firmly believe in uh, PAs and MPs in the emergency department. I think that, um, I don't view it as, well, uh, so I've been accused of training physician replacements. Um, now, it wasn't a lot of people, but these segments have gotten a little heated. And yeah. one of the segments we did must have had 40 um, responses to it. It was more than that. And, it was you know, no, no, no segments on, I think, on MREP, anybody, like, in 40 responses. So this is a very hot topic. I certainly believe that PAs and MPs ought to be in the emergency department. And, and you know, one of the other things is that emergency departments are always run by a medical director, and that medical director is responsible for the care provided by the PAs, by the NPs, by all of the physicians. And so I think that uh, knowing that, there, there's this duty on their part to provide training and, and supervision so that, in fact, these physicians, uh, Extenders, I hate to even say that word. In fact, I don't like the word like physician uh, um, assistants. They're, they're really much more than that. Yeah. And you know, most physicians are opposing the term physician associate, but I think that they deserve it. And certainly, Chip, you deserve that, that term, physician associate, You're, uh, rather you than though, an assistant. Like, yeah, I'm okay with being an assistant. I'm just, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm uh, promoting you. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, you know, I think just kind of, um, I didn't want to interrupt, did you, I, I wanted to just say. That I, think, I think this is really hard, but there is a place for APs, uh, advanced practice clinicians. I like APC. Yeah. yeah. Advanced practice, yeah. nobody wants to be a provider. That's true. Advanced practice clinicians in the emergency departments. Yeah. I think sort of just bringing that like full circle here um, is that I think everyone should know their strengths and their weaknesses when they go into a group. I don't strut into any new job saying like, I know how to do it all. Um, you ask for help. You are a team player. You might be really good at procedures, but you might not be so great at the complex, you know, critical care medicine patient. Um, or maybe you're great at critical care, but you suck at diagnosing anything orthopedic because that wasn't part of your training. Um, or maybe you're really good at ultrasounds, or you're not. Um, but at least you're willing to learn and talk to people and be a part of the team. So I think that's how you can fit in. Don't pretend you know anything um, more than anybody else. If you've done good training, um, there is the imposter syndrome. But overall, uh, you know, find someone you can trust and also a partner in crime, you know? Just, just like Mike and I, right? Mm -hmm.
If only we worked in the same place. <laughs> All right, well, so finishing up, uh, first I'd like to know, just say thanks to everyone who has been here. Go to the next slide for me. Let's do our contest winner. We have two contest winners. Uh, the question from last month on the podcast was the following. Mike, would you like to read it? Yeah, so uh, we did a podcast uh, the last month about uh, strep throat and kind of how to attack the sore throat and what are some ways, especially now in overcrowded emergency departments, how can you deal with these like, well, I want to test them for strep. Does that mean I'm going to occupy a bed for an hour? How do I balance those things, you know, uh, with, you know, keeping a patient in the department, having them exposed to whatever the heck else is in the department too? How can we manage that in these current times? Go back and listen to episode 10 if you're interested more about that. But that led to this question. So the question was this, the initial study that was published in 1950 about how treating strep throat prevents rheumatic fever. Because that's really the main reason we want to treat strep throat, not to get their pain to come down any faster, because it won't, but to prevent the rare case of rheumatic fever afterward. The study that was published about that, it was in what branch of the military service, and these people were located at what base? And so the answer there was, this was a study on Air Force trainees, okay? Air Force trainees at Fort Warren, Wyoming. I don't even know if Fort Warren's still around, but that's where the study was done here. Our winner, who emailed us the correct two-part trivia answer here, is Ashley Palmer. Ashley, we have no idea who you are, as far as, we don't know if you're an NP, or a PA, or a physician, or just like a fan of the show for no reason, you were looking for like a cooking podcast, and you came to the wrong thing, but like, hey, good job, yep. and so reach out to us more about what you want us to give you with regards to, let's say, a free course, which course you want to come to here, we'll be happy to meet you in person, thank you for answering the question. And lastly, that brings us to our winner today, and I will um, say his first name, to keep the rest of him anonymous here since we are live. And our winner is Eugene. So congratulations to you, Eugene. You have won a free course for the advanced course and we're really excited that you can come and join us. I also have a surprise for you over at the table. You can come and collect after the show. Is it in the Jimmy Choo bag? I was gonna say. It's not that. <laughs> I'll take that prize. No, 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 no. So that's it. We have had so much fun here in Vegas. I really appreciate that you all stayed to listen. It really was wonderful to have you in the audience. And thank you to, again, to our guests, um, uh, Chip, Jesse, and Rick. And Mike, thank you for being here as well. Do you want to do our closeout? Yeah, sure. So thank you for listening to this episode of The Two of You. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number two, View Emergency, and it'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get the same Two View goodness. If you like YouTube and you want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version, which you're looking at right now, perhaps, okay? Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of the topics we're discussing. Uh, that website is twoview.fireside.fm. It's the number twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are usually Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett, but today we have Chris Navarro from MRAP helping us out here. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate hey, Chris. you there. And show notes are always by Meg Dipple. Thanks, Meg. We wish you were here. Thanks for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend, share your thoughts via email, and thanks for sharing your time with us on The Two View. Have a great day and an even better shift. See ya.